The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And then it can be automatically extended unless one of the parties expressed intention to terminate it or change it. And so basically that's a veto over the deal extension. And that allowed Russia to politically connect it and try to get concessions. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 18th, 2023. It was a busy weekend in the waters off of Ukraine and Russia. The Ukrainians hit for the second time the Kerch Bridge, which connects the Russian mainland with occupied Crimea. The Russians, meanwhile, announced that they are not renewing the Black Sea Grain Initiative, the complex agreement by which Ukraine has managed to export grain through the port of Odessa. To chew over what it all means, we gathered in the virtual jungle studio Dmitry Alperovich of Silverado Policy Accelerator and the Geopolitics Decanted podcast, and Mikhailo Soldatenko, a visiting researcher at the Harvard Law School and an international lawyer who has written for Lawfare about the Black Sea Grain Initiative. What do we know about what happened on the Kerch Bridge? How big a deal is it? Is it connected to the Russian withdrawal from the Grain Initiative? And what does the scotching of the Black Sea Grain Initiative mean for the Ukrainian economy? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 18th. The Ukrainians hit the Kerch Bridge again. Dmitry, uh, get us started. Uh, it seems like the Ukrainians have hit the Kerch Bridge once again. Uh, what do we know about the strike, how effective it was, and what exactly happened? So one important thing to understand is that there is not really one Kerch Bridge. There is the railroad bridge, which has two rail links going over it. And then there is the automotive bridge, which also has two lanes um, uh, going in each direction. And what the Ukrainians struck was the automotive bridge. We don't know exactly how they did it, although there are some reports, particularly in Ukrainian media, suggesting that this was the work of the SBU, uh, the Ukrainian intelligence, in, in combination with the Ukrainian Navy, and uh, that they were doing this using uh, uncrewed surface vessels, effectively 
boat drones that um, are loaded with explosives that presumably they could drive towards the bridge and, and detonate. Uh, there's some damage uh, to uh, one span of the bridge um, where it has collapsed and, and another span that was uh, severely damaged. So all uh, automotive traffic over the bridge right now is halted. There was a temporary halt to the rail link traffic last night when the strike first occurred, but that looks to be just a precautionary ma- measure by the Russians. And about five hours later, they resumed rail transport. The rail transport from a military logistical standpoint is actually key because that's how the Russians are resupplying their forces in Crimea and um, in Zaporizhia, occupied Zaporizhia Oblast. The automotive bridge is important for supplying Crimea, uh, for civilian needs and, and obviously for tourists going back and forth, Russian tourists, uh, but it's not as important uh, as a military objective. Yeah. So, uh, Mikhailo, I, I, I want to ask you about the strike for a different reason, which is that this bridge has Im- just immense symbolic consequence to Ukrainians. Tell us a little bit about the bridge and why Ukrainians hate it so much. Yeah, so uh, basically the bridge was built following the illegal annexation by Russia of Crimea, and it basically connected the Crimea with the mainland Russia, and it was one one of the uh, symbols that Russia used to kind of promote uh, and to celebrate so-called unification of Crimea with Russia. And so naturally, this was as something that uh, Ukrainian consider it as an offense, uh, a part of the whole thing of the aggression that started in 2014. And so from the symbolic view, this can be considered as breaking this so-called unification uh, on the road of Crimea being at some point in the future back in Ukraine. And as we know, in 2022, there was a strike, and this another strike. There is a boost of morale for the Ukrainian people in this war. Yeah. So, Dmitry, my recollection is the Ukrainians never took responsibility for the first strike, although they made a number of kind of smugly ambiguous statements that sort of all but took credit for it. This time they have basically said we did this, right? Well, not officially, but uh, certainly unnamed officials have been talking in Ukrainian media about some of the alleged details of the strike. So, yeah, they're getting much bolder at acknowledging uh, that they're behind some of these operations, realizing at this point that Russians don't have really a lot of options for retaliation. What else are they going to do? They've already been launching missiles and drone strikes into Kiev and other cities in Ukraine. They've already invaded, so um, their options for escalation are quite limited. It seems to me, though, if you're going to hit the the bridge for its strategic importance, it's odd to hit the auto lanes, although there is trucking that goes over it, but leave the rail link. Should we assume that that was... Uh, accidental, or is there some reason to be targeting uh, the automotive transportation, but not the the rail lines? Well, we don't know for sure. This is speculation, but my my suspicion is that it was easier to target the automotive 
bridge because it's significantly lower. The uh, rail link bridge is uh, quite a bit taller and uh, reaching it from a boat is significantly more complicated. This is now, by my count, the second or third really bold Ukrainian move in the water over just the last few weeks, the other big one being President Zelensky's visit to Snake Island, which required traversing uh, a number of miles of supposedly Russian Navy-controlled waters. How do you read, I mean, I I look at this as the Ukrainians, among other things, just making a, a, a statement very loudly about their contempt for Russian naval control over over this area. Do you read it the same way or is there or is it just a coincidence that a few days ago uh, Zelensky is on Snake Island and last night the Ukrainians hit the bridge again? I think it's probably a coincidence. My assumption is that an operation like this took many weeks, if not months, to plan. So it's been uh, um uh, likely in development for quite some time. But this is uh, an operation that uh, follows many uh, operations we have seen from Ukrainians over the last few months, targeting Moscow with drone strikes, targeting even the Kremlin itself with that uh, famous strike of uh, two drones attempting to detonate on the roof of the Kremlin. Some of these attacks are symbolic in nature, showing that, yes, we can reach Moscow, we can strike your most important infrastructure yet again, like the Scourge Bridge, uh, but it does also have the added benefit of significantly increasing the pressure on the regime. This is embarrassing for Putin. He has put so much of his credibility into building this bridge, obviously uh, occupying Crimea and annexing it illegally. And to have it be struck for a second time after assuring everyone that this would not be repeated. And uh, literally a couple of months after the repairs from the first strikes had been completed, they were allegedly completed back in May is incredibly embarrassing for him. And uh, I'm sure that irritating Putin has um, people in Kiev smiling. Right. So what has Russia said and done in response so far? Well, they've, they've accusing, uh, they're accusing Ukrainians of conducting, quote, unquote, terrorist attack. Um, there, there are civilian casualties as a result of, of this attack. Um, there was a civilian vehicle that... Um, uh, was on the bridge when it was hit, and uh, apparently a mother and a father of a 14-year-old daughter had been killed, and the daughter itself, who apparently was not wearing a seatbelt, was uh, kind of f- flew through the windshield and, and had sustained some injuries as well. Uh, so they're, they're calling it a terrorist attack, um, and in response, they've um, said they're suspending or, or terminating their participation in this grain deal that I know we'll be talking about. Although I have to say that I'm quite skeptical that this is in response to the attack because they've been indicating for many months now that they were going to pull out of this deal once it expires today. Yeah. So we'll get to the grain deal in a moment. But I I mean, I assume we should expect uh, some retaliatory strikes that, uh, unlike this one, are not against legitimate targets, right? Yeah, but, you know, it's not like they've been holding back. They've been striking 
uh, Kiev consistently and, and other cities for, for months now, um, really since last year. I was just in Kiev last week and there were air red sirens every single day when I was there. So uh, it's not like they've been holding back. And uh, I think they'll just continue business as usual. You just beat me to my next question. You were in Kiev last week. I saw some of your tweets. Tell us about the mood and and how things seem to you, particularly relative to your expectations. So on one hand, it's a very normal city. People are going about their daily lives, as you would expect in any European city or even American city. Uh, but you know, you don't have to dig too deep to to see the trauma and the pain of this war. Everyone knows people that are fighting, people that have died, people that have been maimed. There are a number of amputees, young young men that are on the streets of Kiev. And one of the, the scenes that struck me particularly hard, to be honest with you, is when we were leaving uh, from the train station to go back to Poland. And right before we boarded the train, suddenly out of nowhere, there was literally dozens upon dozens of ambulances that just showed up, literally a sea of ambulances, probably a total of 60 to 70 of them. And they were there to pick up the daily wounded that were, that were coming in from the front. And, you know, as you're just looking at them row after row after row of ambulances, you start to get the sense of the real trauma and, and pain of this war. These are just wounded, of course. And this is a daily thing daily thing. What struck me in particular, I was talking to folks at the station. They said, you know, today is a pretty good day. It's a relatively small number of ambulances. Just think about that, right? And, you know, we have to say that there are many more wounded than there are killed. Uh, but And some of the wounded may not be, you know, sig- uh, seriously wounded. They may be able to get back to the front. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's a daily occurrence, what the Ukrainians are suffering through, what they're young generation of men are suffering through, uh, what their families are suffering through. And um, that trauma, that psychological trauma, trauma is very real. And um, I think uh, will be with the Ukrainians for, for a very long time. They're, of course, determined to keep on fighting. In part, you know, I think many in the West do not fully appreciate this. The, the reason for that determination is not just, you know, we're going to take our country back and so forth. That plays into it as well. But in part, it's almost desperation because they know that Russia won't stop, that Russia and Putin will continue to hit them. And their only choice is to keep on fighting. There is no other choice. There is no talk of negotiations. They kind of scoff at that because they, they don't think that there's anything to negotiate with Putin about. There's nothing that you can trust that's coming out of his mouth or a piece of paper that he's going to sign his name to. Um, so in the absence of any other options, they just have to keep on fighting and they're thinking that this may go on for a very, very long time. I think there are many in the West that think that, you know, after this counteroffensive, you know, things will start to simmer down. There'll, there'll be some sort of negotiated settlement. And that's just not the feeling there. And I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. The driver that was taking us to the train station, this very young guy, about 25 years old, had just fought on the front, had returned to Kiev because he had a newborn son. And he, as we were leaving, he said, you know, I hope this war is over before my son grows up. That is how people are thinking about this in Kiev. Wow. So let's, let's talk about the counteroffensive briefly. Uh, there was some significantly sobering news over the weekend, both about the amount of armor from both the United States and Germany that had been destroyed 
uh, in the counteroffensive and about the amount of ground that the uh, Ukrainians have been able to retake of the 60 uh, miles that they would need to take to uh, reach the sea and thus cut off uh, the land bridge to Crimea, uh, supposedly only five have been uh, had. Uh, how do you read this? That you know, I, I noticed George Stephanopoulos asking Jake Sullivan based on this: Is it a is it a you know a stalemate or a a, a quagmire at this point? It seems like a stupid question, but it does seem to be a fair question to say: Is this more of a slog than people expected it to be? And how should we evaluate? the counteroffensive to date? Well, look, uh, you know, I had meetings with uh, various folks in the military, very high level people, as well as people that have just been at the front uh, while in Kiev. And I can tell you that they told me openly that things have not gone as fast or as well as they had hoped. They knew this would be hard. They did not expect this to be so tough um, and for the Russians to be so entrenched there. Uh, the minefields are very extensive, very substantial anti-personnel mines, anti-tank mines everywhere. And the Russians are redeploying them via UAV drones. Uh, there are tank traps. There's um, extensive trenches, a lot of artillery, the um, rotary aviation, the helicopters of the Russian military are causing them a lot of problems and um, you know, inflicting serious casualties. They have suffered um, some vehicle losses early on in the offensive. And because they have so few of them, they're now having to dismount and go on foot into the minefields under Russian fire to clear mines. Obviously, something that's really, really dangerous. And one of the problems, of course, when you go into the minefields on foot is that when you suffer casualties, you have to carry people out on your backs or car carrying people. And um, that's really, really difficult. Again, under fire in minefields. And um, this is just really, really tough. It's not over. They're continuing to push, um, but they're paying a high, high price for every kilometer of territory that they gain. Part of the challenge they're facing is that the brigades that they've sent into this fight are new brigades that were formed specifically for this counteroffensive. They've had some training in the West, but we're talking really about six uh, in some cases, eight weeks of training. That's not a lot. And the bigger problem is that they have, most of them have very little combat experience. And where you're, you're sending people, even with training, that have not been in combat, that have not been under fire, that have not seen their buddies die around them into the situation, it's really hard to, for them to keep going because that's really the only option. There's no miracle solution here. You know, even if this was the US military that was trying to do this mission under those constraints with no air power, uh, very limited equipment. The only solution is to keep going into the minefield, keep going to the next offensive, even as you're taking these horrific casualties. That's really, really tough uh, for anyone, and uh, especially for people that have never experienced that. So um, it's continuing. It's probably going to go on for another couple of months, this offensive. Um, the limiting factor for it really is uh, ammunition. So they, they've procured, or we've been able to procure for them, a significant amount of ammunition from South Korea. And um, once those stocks are depleted, along with the cluster munitions we've just given them, that's when really they will no longer be able to sustain this counteroffensive. So the hope is that before that happens, probably sometime in late September, 
they can make progress and get to the Sea of Azov. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas if you're thinking of starting therapy why not try better help it's entirely online it's designed to be convenient and flexible you can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is 
one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right. Speaking of C's, Mikhaila, um, uh, Dimitri mentions that uh, with the Kirsch Bridge as a pretext, the Russians have now announced that they are not going to renew the Black Sea Grain Initiative. For those who are uninitiated, what is the Black Sea Grain Initiative? And uh, what role has it played over the last six to nine months? Yeah, sure. So the Black Sea Grain Deal, uh, officially called Black Sea Grain Initiative, was brokered uh, by the United Nations in Turkey back in July 2022. And it helped to resume grain exports and other foodstuff exports from Ukrainian ports uh, to the world. The uh, following Russia full-scale invasion in 2022, the Black Sea fleet effectively blocked the ports. There were significant risks of amphibious attacks uh, on Odessa, among other things. And uh, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian self-defense uh, mined approaches to the ports. And under the circumstances, the grain exports were impossible. But with time, uh, Ukraine got increased its anti-ship missile capabilities with the help of the Western partners. And um, as a result, the Black Sea fleet restrained its operations in the Black Sea. And uh, we can uh, make this conclusion from the famous sinking on the Moscow flagship 
and then the liberation of the Snake Island, which was also very symbolic for Ukrainians. And um, this uh, restraint of the uh, activities of the Black Sea uh, fleet contributed to circumstances where Ukrainians could strike this deal. But there was also uh, a pressure on Russia from the global south because uh, the uh, Ukrainian grain exports is critical for the global food security in terms of prices. And it's also critical for Ukrainian economy. And so this deal consisted of two parts. The first part was uh, assurances from both Russia and Ukraine that there would be no attacks, but that primarily concerned Russia in practice. There would be no attacks uh, on merchant ships involved in the export of grain from Ukrainian ports. And this was done by establishing a so-called humanitarian corridor, which was protected from military operations when the merchant ships were there. And the Joint Coordination Center, with participation of the parties from uh, of all parties, Turkey, the UN, uh, Ukraine, and Russia, they coordinated the uh, movement of ships. And among other things, they informed about the movement of ships, uh, military authorities of each party, which then made non-objections to their movement. And in such a way, this provided a comfort for the market to resume the operation to Ukrainian ports. That's the first part of the deal. The second part was an agreement, the memorandum of understanding between Russia and the United Nations Secretariat, according to which the United Nations Secretariat team pledged to facilitate the export of Russian foodstuffs and fertilizers to the world markets, basically engaging with Ukraine's Western partners and private companies in order to remove a Russia-alleged limitation of those. Albeit the sanctions, unprecedented sanctions that the, uh, much of international community imposed of sanctions didn't touch, largely didn't touch the Russian foodstuff experts, still there were some indirect consequences which Russia used in order to try to extract some concessions in the sanctioned regimes. And those effects were basically an overcompliance and self-sanctioning by the private market. Because as, as, as bankers noted, their risk appetite was basically reduced to zero. They, they avoided as far as possible the trans- transactions with Russian element, being afraid to get exposed to penalties, or God forbid, uh, secondary sanctions being put themselves on the list of sanctions. And uh, there were also reputational concerns dealing with uh, Russia-related transactions. And so those two parts of the deal played a role because Russia put a condition, Ukraine and Western partners would not agree to easing the sanctions, having a deal with Russia on this. So that basically was done via the UN Secretariat. And um, it's interesting that the grain deal itself doesn't mention anything about this memorandum of understanding between uh, Russia and the UN Secretariat. It's kind of just a side deal. 
yeah, it's a side deal. But the green deal itself is so flexible in terms of terminating it that it allowed Russia to use it to uh, blackmail other counterparts saying we would not agree to the extension of the deal if there would be no uh, progress with the MOU. And basically what the deal said is it's enforced for 120 days and then it can be automatically extended unless one of the parties expressed intention to terminate it or change it. And so basically that's a veto over the deal extension. And that allowed Russia to politically connect it and try to get concessions. Yes. So the Russians formally terminated the deal today or or last night. I and they they did it officially in response to the Kirsch Bridge attack, but my um, impression was that the deal had been kind of on its last legs for the last three months or so, and it had kind of been living on borrowed time. Is that wrong? Uh, so uh, Dimitri correctly mentioned, and that was something that the Kremlin's spokesman Peskov mentioned, that the main reason for them not agreeing to the extension of the deal was that their demands in respect of easing the sanction were not met, not because of the Kerch Bridge strike. And so they were threatening to exit for a long time. So they threatening, they firstly tried to increase pressure by reducing the time frame of the deal from 120 days to 60 then agreeing the second time for 60 days. And when their threats didn't work, there was only one choice for them, right? Either to act according to those threats or becoming a paper tiger in terms of completely losing credibility in getting anything from this. But I should say that still, albeit the exit of Russia at this stage is not related to the Kerch Bridge strike itself, but Ukrainian strike is related. And that's an interesting part. And there, there are reasonable grounds to believe that according to the deal, uh, if you remember in uh, October 2022, when for the first time Ukraine used maritime drones to attack the Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol, Russia immediately suspended the grain deal, saying that using Ukraine of using the humanitarian corridor for purposes of military attacks. Ukraine denied everything, but Russia then agreed to re-enter the deal on the condition that such operation would not be repeated in the future. And according to the deal itself, Uh, As the Undersecretary General of the UN, Griffith, uh, confirmed, military operations in the humanitarian corridor were prohibited only when the ships were inside the corridor. As long as there were no ships, there was a room to say that you could have used it for the attacks. So you're saying, in other words, that Russia's 
departure from the deal frees up Ukraine to engage in attacks like this? So it basically, so Russia made a condition that if such attacks would be repeated in the future, they would exit. And we can only speculate about this, but following the extension of the deal in October 2022, for one, for some time, the Ukrainians refrained from similar attacks. So it's ambiguous whether Ukrainians were involved in foil attacks, of course, but still similar attacks were not happening until March 2023. That's when Russia starting to say that they would agree only to 60 days. So basically, it looks like there is a chance to believe that Ukrainians connected Russians' threats to exit the deal to their attacks. Because otherwise, such attacks would endanger the grain deal itself. But here, the attack happened on the last day, last hours of the grain deal being enforced when Russia already made clear for everybody that it's exiting. And so Ukrainians felt comfortable to do the strike, or if that were Ukrainians, to do the strike because that would not... Because they were going to lose the deal anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dimitri, do you buy it? Was the grain deal protecting the Kirsch Bridge for these last nine months? Um, I don't think so. I mean, the Ukrainians have struck the, the bridge in the past, obviously. It's been a high priority target for them. So, they, they knew that at some point the Russians were going to bail out of this deal, as, as uh, you've just discussed. So, I, I'm not sure that they were waiting for that. Um, uh, versus having the right capability and the right opportunity to strike it. It's it's unknowable, of course, and we may learn about this long after the war is over, but uh, it's, it strikes me that we, we may have a coincidence here. All right. So, Mikhailo, how, how big a deal is the end of the grain deal for Ukraine? Uh, I mean, the, this was a bit of an economic lifeline to Ukraine when it was put in place, agricultural production is a huge part of the Ukrainian economy. What does it do if the Russians are no longer willing to cooperate with the Black Sea Grain deal? Yeah, Benjamin, I will jump right to this question. I just wanted to to comment on what Dmitry said. I agree that that's a bit of a speculation, and uh, there are always explanations for this. For example, Ukrainians may have waited for having uh, you know, uh, enough military capabilities to strike to have a right moment. But what makes me think that it, it, it is at least a plausible explanation, because there was a pattern. You see Russian actions in October in reaction to the drone strikes, mil- uh, kamikaze drone strikes. Then no drone strikes almost for half a year. Then right after Russia starts threatening that they would extend the deal only for 60 days, you have a couple days later in March, the strike, another strike on the Black Sea fleet by kamikaze drones. Then when Russia again saying, threatening that no, 60 days will be the, you know, the last day, there is another strike in April. And then there were again no strikes with military drones 
and we have the, the attack with military drones, with kamikaze drones, in the last minutes when it was already known that Russia would exit the deal. So I, I, I still think that there may be other explanations. I just think that's, you know, a pattern that we can, you know, think about. I, I will say this. On July 9th, there was an attempted strike of the Kerch Bridge with storm shadows that was intercepted by the Russian air defense. So they have been trying to hit it for some time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But the, the difference with maritime drones is that Russia accused Ukraine, and that's uncertain whether it happened, that maritime drones departed from Odessa. You know, so when you are attacking the bridge with the explosion in the trap, like it was the first attack on the bridge, or with storm shadows, there is no movements in the at least alleged movements in the maritime uh, humanitarian corridor, and that's of course like it's just a speculation, but um, still something that is just interesting to think about. All right. So how big a deal is this for the Ukrainian economy? Have additional provisions been made for the export of grain over land? Or is Ukraine back in the situation that it was before the grain initiative was started in the first place? So uh, basically, before the war, the grain exports accounted for a substantial portion of Ukrainian grain exports. And so that's a really huge blow to the Ukrainian economy. Like before in 2021, the agricultural sector accounted for around 10% of Ukrainian GDP. And so it's a huge employer, it's a huge taxpayer, and that's a huge uh, export percentage of grain exports. And uh, here it's, and then there are alternatives for Ukraine, but the transportation route, alternative transportation route, via land and also via the Danube River. There are smaller ports out there, but it's a bottleneck. You cannot transport the amount of grain that was transported via the Black Sea via those alternative routes. Uh, in his recent interview for African Media Today, President Zelensky noted that Ukraine will try to convince Turkey and the UN to proceed with the deal without Russia. Whether that's possible, that depends on many factors. But one of the main problems would be that the uh, shipping companies and insurance companies may not be ready to take such risks when there are risks of Russian attack, for example, on the Odessa port, right? While still Turkey, in the past, when Russia suspended the deal in October 2022 in reply to the attack on the Black Sea fleet, there was a continuation of shipments for a short period of time. But that was a short period of time, and then Russia again re-entered the deal. And here, some options maybe is that Turkey, in a certain way, put its, you know, and the UN will just take a risk saying, we'll go with the deal. And then it 
may put Russia in an uncomfortable position, whether they would be ready for informational reasons, etc., to make attacks on merchant ships or on their death support. But still, it's risky for the merchant ships and maybe some support in terms of state-backed guarantees may be needed. Whether that is possible, it's still, you know, uh, up for grabs. But Ukraine is... Uh, moving in this direction in order to try to understand whether the Black Sea grain shipments are possible without the Russian participation. And it's important to remember that in the past, Putin said that even if they would exit the deal, they would still guarantee the shipments to Turkey, considering how important Turkey for them. But it's unclear whether this promise would be kept right now under the circumstances. All right. So, Dimitri, wrap us up. Um, What are you looking for in the coming days as you think about the bridge attack, the end of the grain deal, and your recent experiences in Kyiv? You know, let, let me change the question a little bit on you, Ben, if you don't mind. And what I'm actually looking at and what the conversation really is in Kiev that's so different from the conversation here is not about territory, is not about, you know, are they going to take back, you know, this piece of land or that piece of land. That's important, of course, they want to liberate their people, they want to liberate their territory. But the bigger conversation is how does this war end with durable security for Ukraine? where Russia is not going to come back and attack in five years and 10 years, because they certainly believe, and I think rightly so, that Russia and its imperial ambitions are not going to end with this war. And that's why they've been pushing so hard on NATO to try to get into NATO, to provide them that durable security and to allow investments to come in to rebuild the country. But I think in the absence of that, and it's pretty clear that at least while this war is going on, NATO membership is off the table, which, by the way, gives Putin a de facto veto over Ukraine's NATO membership because he can just keep the war going and prevent them from joining NATO. What Ukraine needs is its own deterrent capability, conventional deterrent capability. And the one thing that really surprised me on my trip to Kiev, uh, Ben, is how little of an effort there is to invest in domestic defense production in Ukraine, that there's so much reliance and dependence on Western weapons that they're not really focused on producing their own munitions, their own missiles. You know, they're asking for long-range missiles from the United States, but the reality is that even if we're someday going to relent on attackums, that's pro- they're probably going to come with caveats that you can't use them against Russian territory, which limits their effect for deterrent, right? And if you have a situation in Kiev where they have their own indigenous supplies of missiles that can reach, let's say, Moscow, and they're shooting a missile into Moscow for every missile that's sh- shot into Kiev, that might get the Russians to decide to reconsider pretty quickly. And that's what I think they need to start paying attention to is how do you marshal all their talents and resources, which are numerous, and they have capabilities to develop missiles. They have their own indigenous missiles that they've, of course, developed in the past, the Neptune missile that sank the Moskva cruiser, the Grom and Grom-2 missiles that they've developed. Um, They can do this. I mean, if North Korea can develop missiles, they certainly can. And I think they need to uh, put a much greater effort into building up their defense industrial base, building their own munitions that can keep Russian targets at risk and ultimately try to get durable security for themselves. We are going to leave it there. Dmitry Alperovich, Mikhailo Sodatenko, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, we need you to go out on social media and talk about the Lawfare Podcast. We need you to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast. We need you to bring others into the light about the Lawfare Podcast. And we need you to become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.